You're listening to CJSW Originals. For more spoken word and talk show content, go to cjsw.com and click on podcast. Calgary Pride proudly serves Treaty 7 on the traditional territory of the Nitsitapi Confederacy, Ayajenakoda, and Esutina. This land is also home to a Métis nation of Alberta, Region 3, within the historical Northwest Métis homeland. This place, where the Elbow River meets the Bow, is known by many names to many people, including Mokinsis, Winchespaw, Kurtziso, Otoskune, and Calgary. We thank the indigenous communities of Turtle Island for both the historic and ongoing stewardship and protection of the land we collectively inhabit today. Many nations and people, indigenous and non, are fortunate to call Mokinsis and Treaty 7 territory our home. Acknowledging this land is indigenous protocol, which we honor as a step towards reconciliation and fulfilling our responsibilities as treaty people. Working alongside all nations, indigenous and non, we strive to create safe spaces where everyone can live openly and authentically. You are listening to the broadcast only on CJSW. Hey everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of the Pridecast. My name is Britt Nickerson, pronouns are she and they, and I am your host for today. I am the manager of communications at Calgary Pride. Our vision this year for Pridecast is to create space and visibility for folks who live in our city and have intersecting identities within the 2S LGBT plus community. Learning more about the history of the Pride movement in Mokinstis, Calgary can give us a better understanding of how far we've come and how far we still have to go. And with that, I'd love to introduce our very special guest today, uh, Molly Caldwell, pronouns she and her, a Yonsei visual artist who focuses on textile processes. She's interested in Marxist feminism, equity work, and Mariah Carey. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Molly. Thanks, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Of course, anytime. Um, so just a little context, Molly and I went to school together. We actually went to AU Arts. And then we did a little bit of work together at the New Gallery, a nonprofit here in Mokinsis. Um, and I thought she'd be a wonderful guest for Pridecast today. So thank you again for joining me. First question for you, Molly. So a lot of your visual art practice is rooted in textiles, especially the act of weaving. Could you talk a little bit about your process and your practice? Yeah, for sure. So I consider myself um, an interdisciplinary artist who specializes in textiles and with an emphasis on weaving. Um, I'm capable of most textile processes that you can think of. I can do knitting, crochet, um, embroidery, dyeing. But yeah, my specialty is weaving. I've been weaving for a few years now. And yeah, my practice really revolves around the kind of foundational processes of creation. So You'll often find me um, taking raw wool, spinning that into yarn, weaving that into a tapestry, and then using that tapestry for installations. I did a residency at the Bows, and you have a studio there. And when I would mm -hmm. walk by your studio, I could always just see the most like beautiful colored like yarns and like all the weavings you were make. You, I feel like you were never like we were never there at the same time, but I always got to kind of see like your process in action, like static. But it was always just so beautiful. Oh, um, yeah, <laughs> no worries. So just as a follow-up, um, as a visual artist, have you always been drawn to textiles and weaving or has it been kind of a growth from like a different kind of medium? 
Textiles have always been a really important part of my life. When I was a child, I was really uh, unathletic. I was artsy. So instead of doing sports, my parents put me in sewing and poetry classes. <laughs> so um, I've been sewing uh, probably since I was about 10 years old. I've always been really excited by textiles. I used to read teen magazines like Cosmo Girl and YM. And my favorite issues were the ones with the DIY features that would teach you how to turn t-shirts into purses and jeans uh, into, you know, skirts and stuff like that. So I think my uh, parents gifted me my first sewing machine when I was about 12. Um, and then they also gifted me my first loom uh, in 2018. So it's really uh, thanks to them that I do have all these textile inclinations. They've been really supportive of me being expressive and me, you know, really embracing textiles. Yeah, I, I love the phrase, I was unathletic and artsy, because that literally <laughs> describes me as a child. Yeah. Um, yeah, I but I mostly played video games, so that's, oh, okay. that's it's, instead of doing something like sewing. But I remember in like home ec class, I think I made like one teddy bear from like a pattern, and my mom was so proud. She kept it for like 25 years, I think. Oh, yeah, but ever since then, it's it's been a no for me doing that kind <laughs> of stuff. I'm not very, I'm not that artsy anymore. Yeah. So my next question for you, uh, does your identity as a femme LGBTQ plus person um, find uh, its way into your visual art practice? Uh, my femme identity and my queer identity is very important to uh, my practice and overall just my creative being. Um, I'm really uh, interested in uh, hyper femininity and femme as an identity that moves beyond just femininity, but is really an understanding of gender dynamics within society. Um, I'm really inspired by a lot of uh, femme aesthetics, especially ones that uh, I feel like cis men might find a little alienating. Uh, the really long acrylic nails, uh, excessive makeup, and you know ideas like vanity. I'm really excited by in my work and in my everyday life. Um, so I definitely embrace femme as you know, a source of inspiration in my work. Um, the, also, I think in regards to queerness, the color pink is really important to me uh, and my work. I don't think I really work in any other color. It's my main color. Most of my work revolves around the color pink. And I'm, I use it because I'm really interested in its history as almost an oppressive color towards the queer community. Um, and then it's now kind of reclamation, redemption, and it's um, kind of source of joy for the queer community. So... Yeah, that's pink and uh, the aesthetics of femi uh, femme identity is really important to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that word reclamation, too, because I feel like so much about like being queer is like reclaiming things. So, you know, I love I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I um, I saw your installation at Esker Foundation and it, I think it said like boss babe or girl boss, too. Yeah. yeah and I love that kind of use of like what might be. I guess like almost like an insult from like like het men like cis hetero men mm -hmm. and kind of like reclaiming that and using it in your work. I like I really really loved that. Oh, thanks. So when I look at your work and this is like my own interpretation, but um, I'm instantly drawn to the ideas of like femininity and gender and in particular like labor and the domestic. So um, could you tell us a little bit more about um, maybe how these concepts inform your practice? Yeah. Femininity, gender, and labor, they're all very intertwined concepts for me. I tend to work with them all very fluidly. Um, they all inform each other within my work. Um, I'm very interested, you know, 
as a textile artist and the idea that textiles have historically been feminized labor, uh, kind of relegated to private spheres, um, you know, that were meant to keep women within the household. And so it's really neglected labor. It's really unappreciated labor. Um, So I'm really interested in subverting all these concepts around femininity, gender, and labor. And so, you know, having a really labor-intensive practice um, really allows me to kind of reclaim that labor and really um, emphasize it within my work. You're, uh, yeah, you mentioning the girl boss from my Esker gallery, I'm, um, that was kind of referencing how, you know, contemporarily there's this infantilization now of, uh, feminine labor, you know, this idea of the girl boss or the boss babe, it really, um, again, is just undermining all of these, um, constructs around feminized labor. Um, so I'm really, you know, my practice is really informed by, um, textile-based feminism, I guess is what I would maybe call it. So, you know, reading Rosika Parker's The Subversive Stitch was really important, or um, Faith Ringgold's autobiography on her quilting, or, um, you know, just reading about the G's Bend quilts. Seeing these kind of women taking this labor and using it to, um, yeah, reclaim and express and, you know, um, create, I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think too, about like the idea of like the invisible labor, which is often Mm -hmm. like seen as domestic, like child rearing and house care. And yeah, like creating textiles is like, it's work that's done typically by women, but it's like invisible. And I especially thought of that in your Esker foundation project, because, um, you know, your, your labor, your work was hanging there kind of by hooks and like the artist was present, but also in a way like kind of invisible like that domestic labor is typically seen so Mm -hmm. yeah yeah thank you for sharing that um so when I was reading about your work um I came to learn that your practice speaks to experiences of intergenerational trauma um could you speak to that a little bit I'm interested to know about um the kind of connection between trauma and textile for sure so the way that I've personally experienced intergenerational trauma uh is that my uh grandparents Uh, My Japanese-Canadian grandparents were interned uh, within Alberta during World War II. Um, So that obviously has caused a rift, you know, within my identity as a Japanese-Canadian person. So I really look, you know, back. They were interned in war camps. So their labor was really a burden. It was their, you know, what they had to do in order to survive. Whereas the labor that I'm doing in my practice, I find very redemptive and healing. So I try and make you know, a lot of comparisons between that and try and see a lot of, you know, how labor has fit within intergenerational trauma within my life and my grandparents' life. Um, I've been kind of dealing with themes of my grandparents' internment a little, with a little bit more emphasis in the past few years, Um, thinking a lot about, you know, how to honor my ancestors, how to, um, you know, really embrace, um, you know, my Japanese-Canadian identity, uh, being Yonsei, which uh, is um, fourth-generation Japanese-Canadian. That's what Yonsei means. Um, And, yeah, I um, was awarded, actually, a Canada Council grant last year um, 
that was a research grant that allowed me to do research into specifically textiles and healing practices. Um, so I was um, reading a lot about how textiles have always been really fundamental in healing, you know, sacred cloths that would aid injuries or um, spinning uh, whorls that were staffs for goddesses. Um, so it's always been really fundamental in almost every culture that textiles have contributed to healing. Um, and I think a lot about even in contemporary instances, you know, Dorothy Liebs using weaving programs for veterans after World War II. So this idea that, you know, this hand labor is really redemptive, is really um, healing, is, you know, almost factual at this point. Um, my most recent project that deals with uh, this kind of theme is my publication with uh, Risograph publisher Yokeless Press. Uh, they helped me uh, in republishing uh, my um, grandparents' cookbook, which was acquired by, um, or sorry, it was created by uh, the Tabor Buddhist Church, which no longer exists, uh, and it was created by their Women's Association. So we recreated that um, cookbook. And then we wrapped it in what is uh, known as a furoshiki, which is just a Japanese way of wrapping things with a scarf. Um, but, you know, I was thinking a lot about this textile more, you know, instead of wrapping it kind of holding and protecting um, instead of, you know, just hiding the kind of publication and then hoping that that, you know, it can create some sort of transference with those who do um, buy it. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, when I like the first thing I think of when I, when I think of textiles is like the matriarchs in my family and like mm -hmm. the act of like passing on textiles. Like, um, you know, my grandmother she lives she's far away from me now, but she'll often just send me like care packages with just like dishcloths and like various other like items she's made. And to me, that's just like as good as like embracing her because mm -hmm. it's just a, such a kind gesture and it's with so much love. So thank you for sharing that. The 2022 Calgary Pride Parade and Festival returns in person on Sunday, September 4th. The lively parade begins at 11 a.m., where two SLGBTQ refugees from around the world will lead the march along 9th Avenue Southwest. Following the parade, join the festival at a new venue, Port Calgary. The festival starts at noon and will feature performances, marketplace vendors, food trucks, kid-friendly activities, a wellness area, beer gardens, and plenty of fun activations dispersed throughout Inglewood and the East Village. We can't wait to celebrate with you. So Molly, you had an exhibition um, that we've referenced a few times uh, at Esker Foundation last year uh, with called With One Hand Tied Behind My Back. Um, could you speak to this project a little bit, maybe like the process and the concepts? For sure. So my Esker project um, was based on uh, on um, the character of Penelope from the Odyssey specifically is what it's referencing. Um, essentially, her story is that she's um, the wife of the hero. And while he's on his epic adventure, uh, she's being courted by a bunch of suitors who want to marry her. And she promises to choose one of them when she finishes um, weaving a tapestry. So she weaves all day and then at night she unweaves. So it's this never ending process. And there's a lot of kind of theory into her, uh, Penelope, as this almost feminist 
character who's been relegated to the side lines of this story. Um, but weaving for her was this incredibly autonomous, powerful act where she was able to, you know, maintain her own, you know, choices and her own, um, you know, labor and her own, um, you know, decisions that she was making through this weaving, through this act of weaving. Um, so the exhibition itself was uh, a 25-foot-long hand-dyed and hand-woven tapestry uh, that was unfinished, that was unraveled at the end. Um, but I was also just thinking a lot about, you know, her labor just because it was feminized labor, because she was a woman, how neglected it really is to be appreciated. Um, and then again, you know, referencing, yeah, the girl boss, the boss babe, and how, um, you know, these contemporary uh, references to feminized labor are still, you know, very, um, you know, undermined constantly. Yeah, absolutely. And I know as part of that exhibition um, with Esker, you invited uh, community members and folks to contribute to like a weaving that was publicly displayed. So um, could you maybe talk to us about the role of community engagement in your practice? Yeah, I mean, community engagement is really important to me just because the idea of community itself is really important to me. I think it's really important that, you know, my practice doesn't exist within a bubble, that it does you know, incorporate those around me, my communities, you know, the land, everything like that. Um, so yeah, the workshops were three days where people came and they also learned how to make their own yarn out of um, secondhand textiles, like old shirts and bed linens and stuff like that. And then they um, wove on a eight foot uh, loom that was built for me by the Esker. Um, and I really also... This piece is so important to me because all of the yarn in it is secondhand. So I like this idea that it's not just a tapestry of yarn, but also a tapestry of people's, you know, memories, these sentimental objects. I think of it as almost this way of preserving and, um, yeah, presenting it as like a woven story to, you know, the world for people to look at. Yeah, I, I was so drawn to it. I, I was like obsessing. I was just like looking at pictures of it. And I love this idea of like you hosting the workshops for folks and they can come and learn a skill. I think skill sharing is so important and mm -hmm. a very reciprocal thing kind of just like outside of like the systems of capitalism where we can like share our skills and our knowledge with each other. I think that's really important. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, definitely. I think there and like textiles have always been this idea of knowledge sharing. Yeah. You know, it, they're rarely or historically they've rarely been taught in institutions. They've been passed down from generation to generation. So I like to think of textiles kind of, yeah, existing outside of this institutionalized idea of being taught. And yeah, just this really, you know, equilateral way of learning and teaching is what I really appreciated about the workshops. Yeah, that's really incredible. Thank you. So this is kind of a random question, but um, is there anything outside of, say, like your maybe like typical research that informs your art practice? Uh, something that I really do, um, something that I do that is really important to me is make my own clothing. Um, it's something that I, like I said, I've been doing since I was very young, um, making tote bags, making skirts out of towels. I've always just been making my own clothing. Um, it's really important to me, you know, to, to, uh, recycle and reuse and try and use up as much as possible within a textile practice because textile practices and textiles in general just create so much waste and you know within capitalism fast fashion you know hyper production I'm really conscious of how much I'm 
you know, producing and how much output I'm giving. So being able to make my own clothes and mend my own clothing, um, you know, has really helped inform this idea of just like recycling and everything like that. But it's also just something that I find to be very fun. And there's something really nice kind, you know, being an artist, you, I feel like you very rarely kind of get to enjoy your work in such a kind of, you know, normalized way, you Mm -hmm. know, in such clothing is an everyday, you know, experience. And so it's, it's really exciting to me to be able to do that. Yeah. And everything you make is absolutely amazing. Every time it pops up on my Instagram feed, I'm like, I'm going to rewatch that story again and again, (laughs) because I'm obsessed with your clothes. They are so great. Thank you. So my last question for you is I know you have some upcoming residencies in Denmark and then Cleveland, which are kind of leading up to a show in Saskatoon. So Mm -hmm. could you maybe tell me a little bit about like what, uh, what your practice is going into these residencies like, and what you're hoping to explore? Yeah, so the main reason I'm actually doing these residencies is to use specialized weaving equipment. So in uh, Denmark, I'm able to use a 24-shaft uh, computerized loom. And then in Cleveland, I'm using a digital jacquard loom. So this equipment is really, really difficult to use as a textile artist. It's really expensive. It's hard to maintain. And um, it's really, you know, just difficult to kind of come by. So I feel really lucky that I'm able to go to these locations and uh, use this equipment. But so um, the exhibition that's coming up in Saskatoon is, or sorry, in um, Saskatchewan is uh, kind of about being a stunted millennial. Um, I just turned 30, so it's a little pertinent. Uh, But it's using pop lyrics to kind of express the frustrations of kind of contemporary adulthood. Um, But there is also going to be a few references to queer childhood that I'm excited to kind of um, do. Things like, you know, the Britney and Madonna kiss at the award show. And, Iconic, yeah. <laughs> you know, and the film Debs. So I'm kind of excited to get into a little bit of gay nostalgia, I guess, yeah. for the research for this. Um, but yeah, this exhibition is called um, Not a Girl, Not Yet a Woman. And mm-hmm. it's coming out uh, in June 2023 in Regina. Yeah. Okay, I, I love everything you said. <laughs> totally agree with the sentiment of like, it's easy enough to like, it, or it feels easy enough to be an artist sometimes, but then when you like don't have access to equipment, mm-hmm. like I do photography and it's like almost impossible to get like large format film like developed. So you have to like go somewhere and do it. And it, it's almost like it's a, it's in a journey in itself to try and use these mediums and mm-hmm. yeah, queer childhood. I definitely, for me, like Charlie's Angels. Oh yeah. Uh, that was a big one. And then like playing Dungeons and Dragons. That was like so uh, unknowing at the time, but so queer coded in my childhood. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I love I'm so excited to see this it's just like I'm amped now yeah it's it's definitely going to be some kind of secret things that only queer kids who kind of had those experiences growing up will kind of get but yeah I'm looking forward to it that's really exciting and Mm -hmm. uh, that's my last question for you Molly so uh, thank you so much for joining us and if folks wanted to see more of your artwork uh, where would they go yeah, uh, thanks for having me. If they wanted to see my work, I am on Instagram at Molly JF Caldwell. Uh, and then my website is just mollyjfcaldwell.com. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. And Thank I you. really look forward to seeing what uh, what you make in Saskatchewan. <laughs> thanks. This has been the broadcast only on CJSW. Thanks for listening. Hello, 
You're listening to Linguistically Aware, a spoken word podcast about the ways we use, understand, and think about language. In this episode, we depart from the usual and the common, and we did not invite any guests. Instead, we will listen to a little bit of music, and we will talk about some common misconceptions when it comes to language use and common misconceptions that appear in everyday life. I think that there are certain misunderstandings when it comes to what we do as linguists. There, is, there's, there are also certain misunderstandings when it comes to terminologies. And there are common misconceptions, just like in every in everyday life, in every, in every science, basically. This is CJSW 90.9 FM broadcasting on the traditional territories of all the people who made their homes in the Treaty 7 of Southern Alberta.
first common misconception comes from an acquaintance of mine, actually, who told me that it's very important to not have PhDs in subject matters such as linguistics. So he told me that linguistics is not an advanced science and that we should not have doctoral studies in this field. Well, I understand that there are certain fields that do not have doctoral studies, and uh, I think they should, actually. Uh, all of the fields that, are, that offer master's degrees should have doctoral studies as well. But I also do th think that linguistics should definitely have PhDs, because without PhDs, we wouldn't push the science forward. And the science of language is one of the most important sciences that there is, because language is the window into the brain structure. Language is a window into, the, into our thought. Language connects people and um, we use it every day. It's a part of our everyday life. So it's very important to know more about language and how it works. Uh, there was a research uh, that was published last year, I believe, in which scientists wanted to translate our thoughts or the thoughts of the participants to the waveform. So they wanted to see whether inserting the electrodes on the brain directly can um, generate some kind of waveform, some kind of speech. What they did was um, insert the electrodes on the on patients' brains. These patients were in the post-surgical period, so their brains, uh, their scalps were open and uh, the brains were uncovered. So uh, they inserted the electrodes on the brains, and we know that brain. Uh, it does not have receptors for pain, so it does not feel pain. Uh, the, the electrodes were put onto the Broca's area, and this area is responsible for the language production. So they asked the participants to think about the sentence.